This is Frameform. This conversation was recorded in January 2023 in advance of Dance Camera West. Mother Melancholia continues its festival run along with Samantha's newest work, Romance, another collaboration with dancers from Tanzleder Wuppertal, which will premiere at Cinedance in late March. Samantha Shea, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Dance Camera West audiences, as well as screen dance audiences in general, have already seen quite a few of your films, um, particularly uh, Kate Gately's Waltz that featured Bobby Jean Smith, which had a significant play around the dance film circuit. However, that really just describes the tip of the iceberg as far as the mediums that both you are involved with and that your company, Source Material, is involved with as well. I'm very interested. How did you find your way to movement-based work and specifically toward movement-based film? Wow, such an interesting question, an exciting question to answer. So I went to CalArts for theater. um, And it's really funny. I was planning to be a classical stage actress at the time. Well, let me track let me track back even further. I was training to become a dancer when I was a teenager and I left dance because I got a medical diagnosis. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and it was like it was really hard and I left dance. It was just too challenging for me at the time and I decided to study acting and I went to CalArts. Um but about 3 weeks into my time at the school uh, and I was planning to be like a classical stage actress. I love Shakespeare. I love these things. One of my professors said, oh, there's this company in town and you have to go. And it was Bausch. So that happened. Uh, so I got really excited about physical theater and dance theater. And I somehow got pulled back to dance. And I, w- I started taking dance classes at CalArts that were open to the Institute and I met Victoria Sendra, who shot Mother Melancholia, in a contact improv class. Oh, my gosh. And we started making films together. We became very good friends. And I guess we can say the rest is history. <laughs> I always love hearing different paths to screen dance because there's never the same path. Like, there's no, nothing, certainly nothing prescribed as far as, like, oh, I want to become a dance film maker. And then there's like that set path. It always happy accidents happen. Yeah. And I I would even say that probably my relationship to having a chronic illness has made me a very kinesthetic person and therefore very attracted to storytelling that is so embodied. So it's sort of ironic that, you know, this very thing that took me out of a medium brought me back into it. And yeah, so Victoria also has a dance background. She studied dance and then went to CalArts for film video. And we just started playing around when we were really young. And now we, to this day, are still making films and and she's also an amazing dance filmmaker based in New York um and we've and she also shot waltz actually yeah and it isn't a very niche medium somehow you could say dance film but i think it's becoming more and more known and popular and crossing into other genres and becoming more mainstream which is really exciting definitely definitely now you're currently working actually in 
Wuppertal right now with uh, the company. And uh, this research was brought about by a Fulbright scholarship. What have you been researching in Wuppertal as of late? Hard to answer simply. Um, so I, I'm i in my second season with the company. Last year, it was a lot of observing rehearsals and restagings, getting to know people, I also train, I take class with them, I've gone on tour with them. I also assisted on a restaging of um, Pina's piece Blaubart. And I've also been in the archives. So it's hard to pinpoint one way that you're researching because I also think these are the sort of formal things, the tangible things you can put on paper about what I've done. But of course, there's so much to be said about what it is to also get to know the people. And um, to get to know the environment and also to even feel the echoes of her absence is is something to explore. And um, and also, of course, now there's a lot of stuff around transmission where people are teaching their roles to younger people. And what does that mean when the work is so autobiographical? Um, and it's not just a, choreo- a quote unquote choreography. It's also theater and um, so it's a very, very, it's been a very deep dive. And, um, and I would say that my research now, um, I just actually shot another dance film that will premiere in Amsterdam. Um, and this was very much about Tens Theater and about, um, this, and I shot it in Pina's rehearsal studio. Um, and, uh, so I would say the biggest thing that my research comes from is actually the relationships. And I think that's also sort of the, the center point of Pina's work was that she observed people, you know, and, and mm-hmm. um, of course she has some pieces that are adaptations or literature based adaptations or pieces like Sacra, but many times it was the group of people would somehow co-birth the piece through their shared air so so to share the air is the main research and now I collaborate a lot with the older generation and I would say that the biggest form of research about Pina's work is to have them present an idea in a rehearsal with you you know that's like the ultimate teaching um so it's been a very uh, tremendous learning experience and very moving, very important for me. And um, I don't even think I know what I've learned because it's also been about like sitting in something so long, like, you know, you're in a placement rehearsal for six hours and suddenly crying. Yep. <laughs> Whoa, you know, so um that's what I've been doing. Right. And I think that's a very interesting topic, especially when it comes to transmission and legacy, particularly for a company like Tansieta, which is so tied to Pina's name and to her legacy. And I think it also raises the questions of like how do you continue a legacy? Is it necessarily like, you know, restaging Sako or Kaffee Muller? Or is it, you know, continuing to create in that vein? And I'm actually very interested, particularly when it comes to two of the performers who are featured in Mother and Melancholia, um, Barbara Kaufman, who danced under Pina's leadership, and I believe was the artistic, not artistic director, assistant director to Pina for a time. Yes. 
as well as uh, Brianna O'Mara, who danced for the company for five years, but very much after Pena's passing. So really on, in her in her shadow. I'm very curious if you've gleaned from their experiences and sort of like what, if there's anything particularly different about the way that they experienced their time in the company. Oh, for sure. They had different experiences, I think. I would say that, um, you know, working with Barbara, she was the first person I collaborated with who worked with Pina. The, like I said, the way that she presents material and ideas was very educational for me. Yeah, they, they will bring in something very personal, very coded in poetry, very precise, often with shape. You know, there's certain aesthetics that are very clear. But also what's so beautiful, particularly about working with Barbara, is, um, you know, now also to have researched the repertory and to see her line in the pieces and and to know her through the work over the years and I would say that Pina was very good at at she created an amazing ensemble and each person has a different necessity and Barbara uh, I was actually just speaking with another dancer from the Tanztheater about this that Barbara Mm -hmm. was always the master and is the master still of creating transitions and like finding her place within something. And of course, a very beautiful with shape. She was, yes, the assistant director to Pina with Sakura in particular. She was also my Fulbright scholarship mentor, actually. And we still are very good friends and collaborators. And she's actually restaging Cafe Müller right now. The biggest gift, I think, as well, is that, you know, to work with someone like her, who's, you know, in her 60s now and mostly restaging, is to sort of take what I've learned from her, through her, through Pina's work, and to give it back and to and to also create a space for these amazing keepers of such an important legacy to say, I know you made this amazing work, but you still have a lot to say. And what what is it for you to say now? And as the legacy ages, it's like, I think this is such a beautiful way to honor it. And that's a very sacred thing I share with Barbara and also with other people from the company that I'm working with. And then Brianna, you know, she, of course, yes, had a different experience. She was one of the very first people to join the company that didn't work with Pina. So when she joined, it was, I think, just her and a couple other people that came in. So I think that was challenging, but also very beautiful. And of course, it's I think it's such a pressure to take on these roles and to admire these people and this work and then say, okay, now I'm going to do it, you know? And, and of course there are questions about, okay, I'm not that person, but, but also actually Pina was very often recasting pieces and having different people do roles and people who were very different from each other. But of course it's different when the choreographer is not there anymore. I think it gave her a lot and, you know, she's still very engaged with um, the work of Pina. She just worked on a restaging of Contact Off that was done in Paris Opera. She was a rehearsal director. We still work together as well. We're very good friends. But yeah, it's it's complex. Like like lineage is really complex. Yeah, and that relationship to that work and to, I mean, to Pina herself is just so individual. And that's something that we see emerge in Mother Melancholia is sort of this, you know, really approaching these very pertinent, very, I mean, I always hesitate saying universal, but one, like, themes that resonate with many people from these very individual lenses. 
And in the film, we see four very distinct performers. We have uh, Barbara, Brianna, yourself, and Shalia Latour, who is a Tony-nominated actress. So four different performers spanning different mediums. I'm very curious, what was your directorial approach as far as directing both the textual material as well as the generative material? And how did that differ with each of the performers? Well, I would say all my work is generative (laughs) Um, by nature, (laughs) like even the text stuff, you know. So this was created when we were still dealing with a lot of COVID restrictions. So almost the whole piece was rehearsed on Zoom. It, It was kind of a logistical thing. Barbara and I were the only two people who rehearsed in person before the shoot, which is why we have this duet that runs uh, throughout the piece. So um, I worked individually with each person. And I think, yeah, because the themes are so big, I had to go to the microcosm and say, what do each of us know about these things? Because they are so big. I can't just make a declarative statement. Like there's no, (laughs) there's no, I mean, I'm already not really that kind of person. I always like to present something that conjures a multitude of meanings. That's just how I am. So I worked very personally with people. That's, I just tend to be that way. But with Shalia, for example, we had a lot of fun exploring her ancestry, actually. This was the entry point. She She's also a very good friend of mine. And so a lot of personal things she had shared with me, I was like, what if we went for that? And it was a lot about her playing women in her lineage. And actually the scene between her and Barbara, where Barbara says, are you proud of it? Um, do you want us to see it? So there's actually a really good story behind that. So okay. I was on Zoom with Shalia. And her Tony nomination came in the mail. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, yeah, and um, and she was like, oh, my Tony nomination came in the mail. Because also she was nominated for a Tony during COVID. So it was like she was nominated for a Tony for, like, two years. And they didn't know when the Tonys was going to be and, you know, all of this stuff. And... I was like, where is it? And it, I think it was in a dr- drawer in her dresser. I more or less asked her these questions that Barbara asks her. And we turned it into a text. So that whole scene where she's sitting in the seats, it's about her like claiming her lineage through her art. Those are words, like the, the text, particularly in that scene, it can resonate in so many different ways, in ways that are both affirming and also potentially in ways that are negating as well and sometimes can send you on a thought spiral and just hearing that hearing that origin really really drives that home as far as the scoring of the film i understand that the a lot of the film particularly textually was inspired by uh the album mother melancholia by the icelandic artist soli Visual albums and music videos kind of habit a tricky space within screen dance. Um, for a long time, music videos weren't even considered screen dance because so much, um, because they were considered to be, like all the elements were considered to be in service to the music. But with Mother Melancholia, we really do see a meshing and a melding of the original source with the layers of text and sound design and visual I'm actually very interested. What kind of flexibility did you have with the manipulation of the 
original songs. And what led you to the choice of these particular songs from the album for the film? So Soleil and I have been friends for many years um, and we've collaborated before. And with this album, she really liberated herself from, I think, expectations she had from the industry to be a pop singer because she has quite a an audience and um she, I think she had been pegged a bit in a certain category of like Icelandic folk singer you should sound like Bjork like let's be honest that was what the labels were telling her and she wanted mm-hmm. to make this epic thing and I had even been in the crossfire of some label stuff with her in the past where she was being expected to really fit into a square box And uh, so when she made Mother Melancholia, she said, I want to do something independent. I want to do something like crazy. I want to make a film. And then I can't remember, maybe she had asked me to make a music video and she sent me the album. And I said, and I had just met Barbara and I knew I was going to the Tens Theater and I was like, you want to do something really crazy? (laughs) I want to make a dance film. And she was like, okay. And um, so that was what we did. And it was really cool because actually the opening scene, the first 10 minutes of the film were actually released as a music video where Shalia is speaking and then Brianna is speaking. And we even released the music video with them speaking in the music. You know, what's cool is that Soleil got album of the year in Iceland. Right. So I just want to say like independent artists do your thing and you never know where it's going to go. I think she was very successful in being uncompromising. And and it was interesting too. There was a important lesson in that because I think I also learned how to layer text and do a lot of structural things that I had never done before from watching Pina's work. And I remember talking with Soleil when we were discussing whether or not we would have Brianna speaking in the music video. Because I was like, hey, this is to sell your music. I get it if you want it to just be your music, you know? And she said something to me. She said, well, the thing is, you're paying attention to the text and I'm paying attention to the music. And I said, no, no, I'm paying attention to everything. And And she went, oh. And I remember Barbara one time said to me, like, Pina knew how to look at the whole stage at once. So that was a big part of, I think, the achievement of Mother Melancholia was the structural complexity and the collaging. Like, I was actually watching the Rite of Spring be staged while I edited the film. It was a huge inspiration. And Barbara was restaging it, and then she would sit and edit with me. It was really cool. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. And, I mean, even just seeing visually some of the parallels between that and, like, the Earth, the, like, the, the human-Earth connection. Also, if previously worked in Iceland and with Icelandic artists, um, specifically thinking of Light, which was mentored by, hmm, I wonder who this is, Marina Abramovich. Yes. <laughs> and the Icelandic landscape really is a character in the film in some way. And what draws you back to it? Well, I lived there for a while. There's something very humbling about Iceland. You know, I think people see like sort of the National Geographic, like, you know, nature, beauty, but actually it's a very harsh uh, nature. And I think it it somehow puts humans in their place. And there's a silence to it as well that uh, gives me something. And yeah, that's all I can say. It's just something that, that speaks to me. And yes, Of Light was very much about Iceland somehow. 
And of course, we shot in Iceland for Mother Melancholia because Sole is Icelandic. But to me, it was also important to shoot in the Icelandic landscape because, of course, Sole was talking like about the climate crisis. And I think, you know, the other piece about Iceland is that it it is being eroded by capitalism. The land, the land itself is is sold as a tourism thing. And mm-hmm. also, I think there's this um, we reference this kind of with Brianna, but that the Icelandic woman artist is this kind of uh, it started with Bjork. But I think a lot of female musicians from Iceland are kind of romanticized. And so I wanted to uh, go for that. And there's even an, a text that I used as an inspiration about Iceland being like a white exotic utopia. And that was part of um, Brianna's scene at the glacier uh, where she's taking her clothes off. And actually, it's really funny when she did that scene, there were some tourists there. And there was like this mother daughter and they were like, oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. Wait, can I swear on this podcast? Uh, yeah, go for yeah, it. Okay, <laughs> you can take it out if you want. But there was this like mother and daughter um watching, and they were like, "Whoa, it's so beautiful!" I was standing like next to them while watching. It was being like, "Oh, it's so beautiful! Oh my god! Oh my god! What's she doing? Oh my god! Oh my god! What the fuck?" <laughs> and I was like, "Achievement unlocked! I scared the I scared the tourists." <laughs> so. As far as your next film goes, it's very tied into the legacy of, again, Pina and Sans Teatre. And I guess I have a kind of a big question to close out our time together in that, how do you see Pina's legacy evolving? And in what ways do you see it as essential for the worlds that we live in now? I mean, her work is essential. I don't know if it if we have to prove that it will continue to be because it is. I wonder what will happen as her work ages, you know? I mean, the pieces are still being done and um of course the work is aging and there's and there's questions about it. I think those questions are great. And I also think there's her influences of course uh, without question. As someone who's really close in, I don't know, you know, and I think that Ultimately, the spirit of the work is the most important thing that that lives on. Whenever I watch one of her pieces, I always think, how did you know me? Mm -hmm. As long as that feeling is somewhere in work, then then it's doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, there are certain pieces I want to see restaged forever, <laughs> for sure. But what the traces of what she left behind, I think, will echo and and are I mean they're 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 echoing in me and I know in all of us in so many ways and maybe not knowing exactly how it will go forward is part of it so that it can emerge yeah it's hard to answer it's so big what do you think again yeah it's so it's so it's very hard to to answer that um just seeing the proliferation of her work specifically specifically seeing the proliferation of her work after the Vim Benders film which in some ways introduced so many more people to her work that, you know, maybe weren't able to go to like a New York or an LA to watch it. Um, and seeing it resonate so differently within them and 
you know, seeing people who may not even be involved in a movement-based practice all of a sudden, you know, being latched into this movement-based film. So uh, the reinterpretation of Saka, I forget what the company was that it was on the beach. Uh, had an, um, And Senegal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's very interesting that there's so much work that like a lot of uh, contemporary theatrical dance work was very much cloistered in, even though like a lot of it was supposedly like radical revolutionary, a lot of it was very much cloistered in sort of like this white echo chamber, how that work is being reinterpreted, but yet the original spirit of that work is still carrying and that resonance, you know, then starts to proliferate. Like, like, you, like you said, I think that was a beautiful saying, like, how do you know me? And I think that it's inspiring both that questions and um, even presenting that an additional question how how can you know me even better? Yeah, and I also think it's important to remember, I mean, when she was young, she was, especially, I, I would say, like, she was rebellious. You know, I would say that even in my pieces that are sort of homages to her, I'm also critiquing her, you know? And yeah. I think she would want that, you know? So it's Definitely. also about, like, how you bring the lineage with you and forward in your own heart and soul and granted I can do that with the people who worked with her so I have a little bit of a you know it's a little different for me but it's it's beautiful to have those conversations and to put them in the work you know yeah thank you so much for offering that insight and I know that I'll be chewing on a lot of (laughs) what you just said and I hope that uh, our audience here also does that too Samantha Shea thank you so much for joining us today Thank you so much for having me. This is Frameform, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team and music by Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. Thank you.